In his new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could, Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California and chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, reflects on the Trump presidency, his role in the president's first impeachment trial, and shares his views on the threats against American democracy. I think that's been one of the most corrosive things, which is this relentless attack on, on the truth. And, and I'm sure you feel it um, uh, keenly as a journalist, because the press has been among the biggest uh, targets for the former president and his accolades. He's interviewed by AP Chief Congressional Correspondent Lisa Mascaro. More in a moment. Let's go ahead and open. Um, you've written this big book. I thought perhaps you could uh, read us a little bit about um, from the opening pages. There's the first chapter um, in Midnight in Washington where you talk about your experiences um, at the Capitol on January 6th. The chapter is called uh, The Insurrection. And there was uh, a part I thought you could start us off with. Uh, it's, it's sort of um, right after the folks who were loyal to the former president, uh, Donald Trump, um, came on January 6th to storm the Capitol, basically. It was an insurrection, and they were trying to overturn uh, the results of the election that were being tabulated uh, for for Joe Biden for winning the election. Um, of course, the Capitol was on lockdown that day. You give a fairly grouping account of what happened. And this is a little bit of the aftermath. Could you go ahead and take us away? Uh, certainly. The following day, I felt a mixture of sadness over what our country had gone through, embarrassment at how he appeared in the eyes of the world, anger at the irresponsible actions of my colleagues who had spread lies about the election for months and brought this on themselves and the nation and fury toward a president who had instigated the rebellion. But more than anything else, I was shaken by fear over what this meant for our future and a recognition of how long and difficult lay the road ahead. Donald Trump bore responsibility for the mayhem that took place at the Capitol that afternoon. And every day that he would remain in office, he represented a clear and present danger to our democracy. But what took place inside our chamber the challenge to the electors was every bit as much an attack on our democracy. The assault on our constitutional order was inspired by people wearing suits and ties and cloaked in the genteel language of congressional debate. But their purpose was no less ominous. We can fortify the defenses of the Capitol. We can reinforce the doors and put up fences. But we cannot guard our democracy against those who walk the halls of Congress, have taken an oath to uphold our Constitution, but refuse to do so. It's a pretty big opening there at the start of the book. Um, I felt like this goes straight to the subtitle. The book is Midnight in Washington with Congressman Adam Schiff, and the subtitle is um, How We Almost Lost Our, Our Democracy and Still Could. So a big book, a big title. What, what are you trying to convey to Americans right now at this point in, in our history? I'm trying to convey the fragility of our democracy, something that we always took for granted, but something that in the last four years has been dismantled piece by piece by piece. Um, so many of the things that we thought could never happen in this country have already happened. Um, we cannot take this legacy for granted in any way. Uh, on that, that day, that insurrection day, um, I was one of four House members that the Speaker asked to um, marshal the arguments against overturning the election. And so I was very much focused on what I was saying on the House floor, what the Republicans were saying, how to rebut it. 
And uh, the first thing I noticed uh, was the speaker suddenly was not in her chair, which was strange because I had been part of the planning for the joint session and I knew that she was going to preside through the whole session. Uh, and then I looked up and I saw uh, two Capitol Police officers come rushing onto the floor and grab Steny Hoyer, our number two, and, and just briskly walk him off the floor. And I remember thinking, I'd never seen Steny move that fast. And, and it was apparent that something was up. And uh, I started to ask my colleagues who were increasingly on their phones what was going on outside the building. And uh, soon Capitol Police came onto the floor and told us that there were rioters in the building. We still didn't have a sense of how many or how much of a danger they posed. Uh, but the warnings from the police uh, during the minutes that followed became increasingly dire. We need to get out our gas masks. Uh, we need to prepare to get down on the ground. Um, and uh, and ultimately, uh, they said, we need to get you out. And uh, we could hear the rioters then. We could see them uh, through the glass, banging on the doors, trying to get in. And uh, there was a real... Um, log jam, trying to get out off the house floor of members trying to get through the doors. And um, I remember thinking to myself, where did all these people come from? Because only 40 of us were allowed on the floor mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. But people were in other parts of the Capitol, um, uh, in the Speaker's Lobby, in the cloakroom and elsewhere, and suddenly it was very crowded. So I hung back for a while to let uh, folks go through. And I remember a couple of Republicans coming up to me and saying, um, you can't let them see you. Um, I know these people, I can talk to these people, you're in a whole different category. And my first impression was to be oddly touched by their concern and my safety, but, but that gave way to, to the feeling that, that I just read about, which is if these members hadn't been pushing this big lie about the election, uh, I wouldn't need to be worried about my security. None of us would have on that day. And in that sense, um, I, I came to realize that, that a lot of the anger I would feel uh, about that day was directed at my colleagues because unlike the people climbing on the building uh, who believe the big lie, people I worked with inside the building knew it was a big lie uh, and, and were unwilling to, to say so. And, and even as recently as um, uh, the last few days, we had Steve Scalise, one of the Republican leaders, being asked point blank, uh, on Fox no less, uh, whether the election was stolen and he couldn't bring himself to deny it. And this is, you know, one of the things that I discuss in the book, which is power, uh, Robert Carroll, the historian, once mm -hmm. said, doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it reveals a lot about who we are. And the last five years have revealed a lot about people I served with, people I had respected and admired because I believed that they believed what they were saying. Turns out did not believe it at all. And... Um, and I wanted to write about uh, how that change takes place, mm -hmm. um, but from a very personal perspective. It's really interesting. People um, in the country probably got to know you most uh, during the impeachment trial. You prosecuted the first impeachment of President, uh, the former President, President Trump. Um, of course, um, there was the, the second impeachment. Having gone through that experience, and now um, you are on the committee that is investigating the 1-6 um, insurrection at the Capitol, um, what have you learned and um, really... Let me ask you, what are you trying to find? We all saw what happened January 6th. If, if you didn't see it firsthand, you saw it over and over in the footage that's been out there. Um, of course, the Associated Press, other publications have done deep dives into 
what happened, how things unfolded. What what more is your committee, other than establishing a historic record here, what are you trying to find? Well, uh, you know, you mentioned the the, the impeachment trial, and um, one of the things I wanted to convey was the realization um, during that trial for me, and 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 the Senate chamber is a very small place. Um, you can see every senator, you can see their expressions, you can see when they're paying attention, when they're nodding off, when they're moved, when they're not moved. And I remember at a certain point in the trial um, pointing out that um, the senators knew exactly who we were dealing with in Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and if any of them thought he wouldn't turn on them in a heartbeat, um, they were fooling themselves. Uh, that he cared nothing about the truth, he couldn't tell right from wrong. And as I looked around that chamber to see whether there was any disagreement among the Republicans, whether any were shaking their heads, oh, no, Donald Trump's not like that, um, there was none of that. Uh, They knew exactly who we were dealing with. They knew exactly what he had done uh, in withholding hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to an ally at war to help get help cheating in the election. But they weren't willing to do anything about it. And... Um, to me, what I, what I learned from that is there's no flaw in the impeachment clause. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, written, um, like the rest of the Constitution, extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is if we don't have people who will um, give it meaning, um, who will apply right and wrong, who will discern the truth and be willing to use the truth, who will, in essence, live up to their oath. If people aren't willing to live up to their oath, then none of it works. And um, one of the things that gave me room for optimism is, uh, you know, people like Mitt Romney, who were willing to risk the wrath of their party to speak the truth. Um, In him, I I found vindication of the founders' belief that people possessed sufficient virtue to be self-governing. And I see that same virtue in the January 6th committee. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are really courageous. Um, They're willing to speak the truth to power, to the most powerful person in their party. Um, they're, they're determined that the party, the Republican Party, be again a party of ideas and ideology. And that those ideas and ideology are very conservative, they're different than mine, but I respect the fact that, that it is an ideology, that they do have ideas, that it's they're not willing to join a cult around a certain former president. And, um, and if you watch that first hearing that we had with those four Capitol Police officers mm-hmm. and uh, beyond the fact that the officers were so powerful in their testimony, the other thing that was so striking to me about that hearing was there was no fighting among the members. No one was trying to score political points against one another. We were all interested in the truth coming out. That was the, the sole purpose of our being there. And, you know, to be able to work on a bipartisan that way, that way again um, gives me a lot of hope for the future. To what end? What would you accomplish on this committee? Um, a couple things. One, we want to show the country just how January 6th came about, um, and not just the the mechanics of that day in terms of the participation of the white nationalist groups like the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the Boogaloos and whatnot, um, but rather how uh, this big falsehood um, about our elections propelled thousands of people to attack their own government. Um, how destructive the, the lies of the last four years have been um, and, uh, and, and what we need to do about it. Um, we want to write the definitive report mm-hmm. 
of all that went into that day, um, in much the same way that the 9-11 Commission wrote the definitive report of what happened on 9-11, both as a a historic record, uh, as a a way of exposing to the American people um, what went into that tragedy, um, but also as a way of forming recommendations about how do we move forward as a country, how do we protect our democracy. Uh, There's a global struggle going on right now between autocracy and democracy. People around the world who used to look to us as a beacon um, now see people climbing on the outside of our capital, uh, beating police officers. They see one party willing to default on America's credit. um, And they look around for other models. And one of those models is a totalitarian one, uh, China. Mm -hmm. Um, We're competing with that. And uh, so this is, as the president says, it's a fight for the heart and soul of this country, but it's also a bigger fight for the heart and soul of people around the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you're going to unearth new findings in this committee? Without a doubt. And and I think there's several different buckets mm -hmm. that we're looking at uh, in terms of the investigation. We're looking at what was the organization uh, that went into that day? How was it financed? And what did they expect in terms of the propensity for violence? Um, why was the military so slow to respond? Some of those questions have, have already been uh, examined um, in part by other committees. The biggest black box, though, is what was the president's role? Mm-hmm. What was the role of people in the White House? What did the president know about who was coming to this rally? Um, and, uh, and what did he do when he found out? Uh, why did it go on so long? Um, and so... There are a lot of uh, important unanswered questions. The impeachment trial really showed um, some of the limits that you ran up against um, in terms of executive privilege and in terms of trying to um, subpoena testimony. Uh, You you seem to be running up against that again now on the January 6th committee. It's a little bit in the weeds, but can you you say, do you expect that the committee would hold um, those who failed to appear in contempt? Uh, we, we certainly expect to hold them in contempt if they refuse to appear. And uh, you know, I, uh, one of the things that, that I do in the book is explain how we got to where we are mm-hmm. in so many different ways. And um, a big part of the reason why Steve Bannon believes that he can just thumb his nose at the committee and ignore process, or at least that seems to be where he's headed, is uh, we brought him in as a witness during the Russia investigation. Uh, At that time, the Republicans were in charge of the investigation. And um, the book uh, Fire and Fury had come out, which quoted Bannon as saying a whole lot of things about Trump and his family that angered the former president. And so Bannon was was, uh, on the outs of the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, And he also had lost his platform at Breitbart, so he was kind of a man without a country. Uh, And for that reason, uh, even the Republicans on our committee were willing to assert themselves for the first time in the investigation when we had a witness, like many others who had come before the committee before, mm-hmm. but now they were willing to assert themselves and say, no, you've got to respond to our questions. And when he didn't, um, he had come in voluntarily, they gave him a subpoena on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so two weeks later, he comes back in, now under mm-hmm. subpoena. This is all happening three floors below the Capitol. I wanted to bring people into that famous bunker and show them what really happened in there. So he shows up this time... Um, he, he br- brings with him a list of 25 questions that have been written out in advance. And he says, these are the only questions I'm going to answer, and I prepared them for you, and here are the answers. No, 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 25 no's. 
Um, and when I asked him, mm -hmm. where did this list come from? It came from the White House, um, which was the subject of our investigation. So the subject of the investigation mm -hmm. wrote out for a key witness the only questions that he would be allowed to answer. And the, the Republicans again expressed kind of umbrage. How dare you? How could you? Well, the next step was to hold him in criminal contempt. Mm -hmm. But they refused. Um, and they refused because they knew if they did, with this one witness, with this man without a country, it would expose the hypocrisy of why, with all these other witnesses, the Corey Lewandowskis, the Don Juniors, and uh, the Jared Kushners and others, when they refused to answer questions, well, why didn't you insist with them? Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's given people like Steve Bannon, the last four years have given people like Steve Bannon, the impression they're above the law. Um, and... Um, but they're going to find out otherwise because during the Trump administration, we had Bill Barr as, a, as the Attorney General, and um, he was not going to enforce subpoenas because mm -hmm. he viewed the, his role as being criminal defense counsel to Donald Trump. Um, but now we have Merrick Garland. Uh, we have an independent Justice Department. Um, we have an Attorney General who believes in the rule of law. And so um, this is why I, I have... Uh, confidence that we will get the answers. Mm -hmm. So you're confident that DOJ will back you up and will prosecute those? That is my expectation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's good reason for, for having a positive expectation about that because the White House um, has shown courage in not asserting executive privilege over records belonging to the former administration. Mm -hmm. um, they have been willing to allow top Justice Department officials to talk to us and other committees. Uh, without asserting uh, privilege, and that's a pretty good indication that they realize that these are unique circumstances. Our government, the seat of our government, was attacked violently, mm -hmm. and they're not going to stand in the way of the American people getting answers. Mm -hmm. The former president w still occupies such a big space in a lot of conversation in Washington and outside of Washington. Um, you know, he was impeached, impeached, uh, the only president to be twice impeached, and the only president to be uh, impeached after he had already, uh, you know, uh, was well, tried for his impeachment after he was out of office. Um, much like the response to January 6th, there was a sense that there was a, a sort of failure of the imagination, that, that um, law enforcement, people preparing to protect the Capitol, perhaps didn't really envision what could happen. Um, perhaps could, a similar thing could be said about the rise of Trump. Um, you yourself have said you were sort of surprised to see that he won the party nomination and then, and then won, uh, went on. What do you think now when you consider that he could run again and be, uh, you know, again an occupant in the White House? Um, where does that leave you? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, I used to tell a joke during the 2016 Republican primary um, about why Donald Trump was never going to win the nomination. Uh, and I said there were two reasons for that. Um, the first is that Republicans were not that crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second was the Democrats were not that lucky. Well, turns out they were that crazy and we were not that lucky. And um, But I, I would have never imagined that someone uh, with his... Uh, record of dishonesty and philandering and everything else uh, would be the nominee of the Republican Party, let alone become president of the United States. But he did. And um, I think part of why he was successful in that campaign is that uh, he recognized that there were millions of Americans who were struggling, um, 
who had worked their whole lives, had nothing to say, uh, nothing to uh, save at the end of their career, and were going to have to work till they dropped. Their kids had debts from college and came out of college with no jobs. And here was someone promising to break everything. Uh, there had been a candidate in the primary, primary uh, Bernie Sanders, promising a revolution. Uh, but when he was no longer uh, an option, uh, they went with the guy um, promising to break everything. Um, I mean, most Democrats didn't, but some did. And, uh, and um, the Republicans obviously uh, consolidated behind him. And it, uh, he did break everything. But, of course, he didn't do anything Mm-hmm. for the, the people that he referred to as the forgotten people. Yet he remains very popular. And, you know, for those of us that covered parts of the um, campaign or sat with people at their kitchen tables and heard their stories about why they were supporting him, it was clear there was a, a big interest in, in his candidacy. And he remains very popular. Um, so I guess I ask you, you know, have, have Democrats learned? Has, has you, have you learned? Have, has your party learned? Um, um, how best to uh, win back people who seem to have um, moved in his direction and are now firmly um, in a camp that you and others find, um, you know, so dangerous to democracy? Uh, you know, we have, uh, and that was the key to Joe Biden's success. Uh, he was able to win back uh, a number of people who had voted for Trump and uh, and make the case of what a disaster he'd been for the country. Um, do you think that could happen again? Do you think Trump could win again? Well, I, I think that, number one, I, I think he's certainly running again. Mm-hmm. I think the idea for Donald Trump that someone else could be in the limelight other than him, that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence could be the nominee and get all that attention, mm-hmm. would be absolutely intolerable to him. So I think it, pathologically he's not capable of not running. Mm-hmm. Um, could he get elected again? Certainly he could get elected again. Um, and... We uh, underestimated him once too many times already, mm-hmm. uh, myself included. And, um, and given what a clear and present danger he poses to our democracy and our way of life, um, uh, we're going to need to beat him at the polls. And, and we will. And we will. Um, uh, I think that uh, as time continues, uh, more and more Americans realize um, how precarious our... Uh, country is right now, how precarious our democracy is, mm-hmm. um, and come to appreciate uh, just what an awful period we went through with his presidency. Mm-hmm. And as we put more distance between that time and the present, um, I think people will increasingly recognize that they don't want to go back to that. They want to go back to having a president of the United States who gets up every morning trying to figure out new and inventive ways to divide us, to poison the body politic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's the explanation for his continued popularity with his base? Um, I think that, that like a lot of other autocrats and would-be autocrats around the world, Trump gives a simple answer for people's predicament. Um, mm-hmm. It's because of people who don't look like you. Um, but he also adds, adds another bit of poison, uh, which is those other people, they look down on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know everybody's a crook, um, but I'm I'm your crook. Uh, I, I, obviously, he doesn't articulate it that way, but I think there's no <laughs> other way to explain how he feels he could pardon Steve Bannon after Steve Bannon ripped off his own supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is an astonishing thing when you step back from it and imagine that 
guy runs for president on a platform of building a wall that Mexico is going to pay for. Mm-hmm. Of course, Mexico doesn't pay for it. It doesn't get built. Um, his cronies then start a fund, private fund, to build the wall. They steal from the fund, and then the president pardons them for stealing from his own people. Now, mm-hmm. how does that happen? Well, you've got to be a really good grifter mm-hmm. to get away with that, but he's a really good grifter. What's the worst that you, uh, if you lay in bed at night and think of the worst in your mind that could happen if the, president, the former president were to win re-election again? What? The, the country yeah. survived. It had some guardrails. It exists yeah. today. What's your I, concern? I don't, I don't think the guardrails will hold for another four years. Mm-hmm. Um, they came very close not to holding this time. And um, we were fortunate, number one, that Biden won by as large a margin that he did. Mm-hmm. We were fortunate that the president was as poorly represented as he was by the Rudy Giuliani's of the world and their absurd displays with a hair dye running down their face and their... Mm-hmm. Uh, and their their ridiculous, meritless lawsuits. Um, and we were fortunate that, that people had the courage to defend our democracy uh, when Donald Trump called them on the phone mm-hmm. and asked them to find 11,780 mm-hmm. votes that don't exist, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, had anyone else done, they would have been indicted by now. Mm-hmm. Um, we may not be so lucky next time. And I think what the Republicans are doing around the legislature, around mm-hmm. legislatures around the country, is running with this big lie to uh, position themselves to succeed where they failed with the last insurrection uh, by overturning an election uh, through quasi legal means. Mm-hmm. And if that should happen, not only would we have uh, someone um, cheat their way into office, but um, the 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 turmoil in the country would be unprecedented. And so that is, that is my uh, gravest fear uh, mm-hmm. for the future. But, but I do want to mention, and, and I devote a lot of uh, time in the book to this, mm-hmm. there are some really heroic figures who came out of this dark mm-hmm. chapter, and they're, they're the ones that we ought to look to mm-hmm. for inspiration about, you know, how do we get through this? Um, they're the reason why I feel optimistic about our future. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, people like uh, Bill Taylor, who served his country in Vietnam. He graduated at the top of his class in, in uh, West Point. He chose to go to Vietnam. He chose to join a, um, uh, a brigade that was going to see combat, and he did, and he was highly decorated. Um, he can s- continued to serve throughout his life since then, and... He was not going to dissemble or be dishonest, no matter who the President of the United States was. And he was going to do his duty when he was subpoenaed and come in and tell the truth, and he did. And, uh, and so many others did. And You talk a lot uh, in the book about some of those figures from the impeachment trial, and there was a moment there in the trial where it did seem a number of these civil servants were sort of making headlines for themselves because of their testimony. Um, it is an interesting lesson to think about when, when you talk to young people or other people, I'm sure you're talking to candidates who might run, um, you know, how much do you draw on those figures um, in making your case uh, about what civil you know, service can look like in this country? I think of the people you write about, um, Marie Yovanovitch, um, Lieutenant Colonel um, Vindman, some of the others that you write about. I think you had a, quite a relationship with him afterward, right? You personally called him? Uh, I did call him. Um, I, I was so moved by his testimony. And 
um, there, there was a quality to his testimony and his demeanor um, that was really quite innocent, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, hopeful, and almost prayerful in mm. the way he talked to our committee about um, how in this country right matters. Mm-hmm. And he felt confident to tell his father not to worry about him. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's and right. He was an immigrant to this he, country, he, he right? He was an immigrant. Right. You know, his parents, uh, grandparents came from mm-hmm. a part of the world not far from where my great-grandparents mm-hmm. came from. And his experience uh, was very uh, relatable. And I called him afterwards and uh, thanked him for the service that he did once he was, when he was essentially hounded out of the military by the president. And, mm-hmm. and his brother, his twin brother, was hounded out of his position as well. Mm-hmm. Um, to thank him for the credible service and uh, to tell him how much my father reminded me of his father and to pass on my father's regards to his father. Mm-hmm. And, um, but uh, one of the things you know, asked about candidates that um, really encourages me about this time is some of the very best people ever to run for office have decided to run for Congress. Um, mm. The class of 2018, for example, mm-hmm. that... Uh, the the Abigail Spanbergers and Elaine Lurie's mm-hmm. and Tom Malinowski's and others. With a nickname we probably can't say on the <laughs> television, yes. but yes, I remember reading. <laughs> well, there that class is probably the finest class of new members mm-hmm. we've, we've had, I think, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I will stand them up to the Watergate class uh, any day of the week. Mm-hmm. And the class of 2020 mm-hmm. was every bit as good, and it's a terrible loss to the country that mm-hmm. that they were wiped out uh, mm-hmm. in the 2020 election um, when Republicans who voted against Trump at the top reverted to form and voted uh, Republican down ballot. Um, but the the ugliness of this time has not deterred good people from running. And in fact, in the same way that after 9-11, mm-hmm. people joined the service to defend their country, mm-hmm. uh, after Trump, people thought, I have to serve again. A lot of them, veterans. And I'm going to serve by running for Congress mm-hmm. uh, to defend our democracy. Well, since we're talking politics, let's jump a little bit. It does seem like there is a lot of thought that Democrats might lose the House in the next election because you have such a slim hold on the chamber right now, just a few-seat majority. Um, and that would uh, queue up the potential for um, Kevin McCarthy, who's now the Republican leader of the House, to become the Speaker. You, you write a story about, about uh, Kevin McCarthy in the book, and um, in fact, basically call him a liar <laughs> in the book. Um, what, uh, what kind of speaker do you think he would be? Oh, I think he'd be an absolute disaster. Um, Why is that? For many reasons. Um, lack of character. Um, uh, his obsequious uh, relationship with the former president. Um, if Kevin McCarthy were ever to become speaker, essentially Donald Trump would be speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would not... Um, uh, disagree with him ever, um, and you would have an outside party effectively running the House of Representatives mm-hmm. and a an ethical one to, mm-hmm. to boot. Uh, the the story, as you know, that I tell in the book, uh, I told because I think it's so characteristic. Um, mm-hmm. McCarthy and I were sitting on a plane flying back to Washington. This was in 2010. Uh, the midterms were about six months away, and we were having an idle conversation about who was going to win the midterms. And I said the Democrats would win, and he said the Republicans were win would win and the movie started and I was relieved to mm-hmm. <laughs> to escape to the movie and uh, we landed I thought nothing of the conversation and we went our separate ways and that night unbeknownst to me he did a briefing for the press in which mm-hmm. he told the press 
that everybody knew the Republicans were going to win the midterms, that he sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane, and Adam Schiff admitted Republicans were going to win the midterms. And so I didn't learn about this till the morning when the newspaper came out, and I was just aghast. I was astounded, and I sought him out on the House floor, and I said, Kevin, first of all, for having a private conversation, I thought, I thought it was a private conversation, but if it wasn't, you know I said the exact opposite of what you told the press. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, Kevin, uh, no, I don't know how it goes. You just make mm-hmm. stuff up, and that's how you operate, because that's not how I operate. But that is how he operates. And you cannot have someone um, with such little regard for the truth serving as the Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and indeed, um, this is, I think, one of the most destructive things of the last several years. Now, McCarthy was ahead of his time mm-hmm. in his uh, lack of um, devotion to the truth. But, but over the last four years, there's been this relentless assault mm-hmm. by Trump and his acolytes on the truth itself. Uh, probably best expressed by Giuliani, who said the truth wasn't truth, and Kellyanne Conway, who said that they were entitled to their own alternate facts. Um, if we can't agree on very basic facts, if we, we don't have the same shared experience, mm-hmm. democracy doesn't work. Um, and, and so um, I, I think that's been one of the most corrosive things, which is this relentless attack on, on the truth. And, and I'm sure you feel it. Um, uh, keenly as a journalist because the press has been uh, among the biggest uh, Mm -hmm. targets uh, for the former president Mm -hmm. and his accolades. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a autocratic playbook which uh, says you need to discredit uh, objective media. Um, You need to persuade people that the only truth is what you tell them. Um, and, uh, And so we can't have another president like that. And we certainly can't have a Speaker of the House like that. Mm-hmm. What is your prescription? You know, there there is a divide in this country, and it is feels that it only deepened has only deepened over the years. Um, folks, you know, we we know it well. They watch their own, you know, favorite channels. They read their own uh, favorite publications. Um, there is a polarization and a sorting that has happened geographically, ideolo- ideologically. Um, you know, if you're trying to build a common truth and a common narrative, how do you convince um, a good portion of the country that doesn't believe? Uh, sure, maybe not the same policy goals, or but but even for example, on the one six. Um, insurrection on January 6th. A good number of the country you see thinks, well, maybe it didn't quite happen that way. It wasn't quite an insurrection. What is your prescription? How do you reach people who perhaps just won't see it the way you see it or the way it's uh, happened? Yeah. Uh, It's very difficult. Um, And I think the only answer is just relentlessly confronting people with the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, There is just no alternative. Uh, we're in an environment uh, which one of my colleagues, uh, Mike Quigley from uh, mm. Chicago, I think summed up better than anyone um, when he said it used to be people would say, um, I'll believe it when I see it. Now it's more, I will see it when I believe it. Mm. Um, you can show people video of the Capitol being attacked, but if they're not ready to believe it, they don't even see it. They won't see what's right in front of them. And... You know, part of it is um, that we get our information from such different places. 
it's very hard to break through those barriers, and sometimes the only way to do it is is just one on one. I tell a story in the book of being uh, in the airport in Charlotte during the Russia investigation, and I have some of my most meaningful conversations in airports. And uh, this guy comes up to me while I'm waiting for my Uber, and, and a, in a very conspiratorial tone, he says, "There's nothing to this collusion stuff, is there? You, you can tell me there's nothing to this collusion stuff." And uh, I said, "Let me ask you a question." What if I told you, um, and here I flipped the facts uh, for him, what if I told you that the Russians had approached, not the Trump campaign, but they had approached the Clinton campaign, and they'd offered dirt on Donald Trump, and they said it was part of the Russian government's effort to help the mm-hmm. Clinton campaign. And instead of rejecting it, Clinton campaign said, we would love that, and set up a secret meeting in the Brooklyn headquarters, uh, attended by... Um, Hillary's daughter Chelsea and her campaign manager Bobby Mook and campaign chair John Podesta uh, and they met secretly with the Russians to get the dirt they were only disappointed the dirt they got wasn't better and then they lied about it Mm -hmm. would you call that collusion and he says I think I see where you're going here (laughs) and I said well give me let me give you another illustration Uh, what if I told you that uh, that Hillary Clinton's national security advisor Susan Rice Mm -hmm. she was the national security advisor was secretly meeting with the Russian or talking to the Russian ambassador, trying to undermine sanctions on Russia over interfering in our election, um, and then lied about it. Mm-hmm. Would you call that collusion? And he looks at me and he says, you know, I probably would. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Eureka! Mm-hmm. Now if I could just talk to uh, you know, 100 mm-hmm. million more people. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes that's what it takes. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it takes conversations that are very difficult right now mm-hmm. between neighbor to neighbor, sometimes within our own families. Um, there are things we're looking at that might help. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think the, the way that social media has mm-hmm. divided us and, and amplified for fear and anger and loathing and division um, should mean that we ought to uh, change that immunity mm-hmm. that they have. Um, and but, uh, you know, among the most difficult things is in the country that venerates its First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wide berth for lies, and that's a really difficult problem when those lies travel with virality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since this is book TV, we should probably should talk a little bit about writing and the craft of writing this book. So why don't you tell us? Um, it's titled Midnight in Washington, so I'm envisioning that you were writing it at midnight, but you tell me, what are your writing practices? How did you, uh, how did you put this, uh, this book together? You know, that's very interesting because uh, that's not where the title came from, but that, that's <laughs> very true. I was writing a lot of this at midnight. Um, during the course of the last uh, several years, mm-hmm. uh, I would have colleagues on the House floor come up to me and others and say, I hope you're writing this down. You better be writing this down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're living through an historic time. You're in the eye of the hurricane. Mm-hmm. And I would always say to them, when do I possibly have time to write any of this down? Mm-hmm. And for years, I didn't have time. And then suddenly the pandemic hits. Mm-hmm. And like the rest of America, I found myself confined to quarters. And I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to write it down, I should write it down now while it's fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to write it down in an engaging way, but I also wanted to write it down to preserve a, an historic period. Um, there have only been four impeachments in history. And I wanted to let people know what's it like stepping into that Senate chamber and uh, you know feeling the heart beating in your chest and um, and realizing that uh, 
Um, people are, are watching all over the world. Um, uh, but uh, um, it was a labor of love, and sometimes it was, uh, I have to say, traumatic, because mm -hmm. I had to live through all this stuff again. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, and uh, and that wasn't always easy, but I uh, had a wonderful editor, Mark Warren at Random House, who was just fabulous. Uh, I had done other writing before, but nothing of this length. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so, um, but I have to tell you, one of the most fun parts of it was was narrating the audiobook mm. uh, because I got to do something that I've always wanted to do, which my family doesn't let me to do, which is. When my kids were young, they were very young, they would let me read to them. And mm. when they got older to be teenagers, they didn't want me to read to them anymore. Right. I'm always trying to read stuff to my wife, Eve, and mm. she's like, I'd rather read it myself. Mm -hmm. And now I got to read this whole book um, for anybody who wanted to listen to it. And uh, and that was really fun. Ah, that's, that's great. Yeah, 500 pages, that must have taken uh, some hours of <laughs> it reading. It did. Can you tell me, you're such a student of history, um, did you have any um, historical writings in mind? Any other books that you, um, you know, looked to when you were thinking of writing, writing your own? Uh, you know, um, I guess one thing that, was, that uh, made it a bit easier for me is I, I love to read history and biography, so mm -hmm. I was very familiar with the genre. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and some that I look to in particular as just the, you know, sort of the pillars in the field, mm -hmm. uh, like Ron Chernow and mm -hmm. um, uh, John Meacham and Michael Beschloss and others. And, uh, and so I had these great models to follow. Um, and... Uh, you know, there are things that you you never think about. Uh, I'm, I'm reading Grant right now by Ron mm -hmm. Chernow, which is fabulous. And one of the things that uh, that he does so well and so effortlessly is he will be speaking in the present what the character's doing, what, what Grant is doing in the present. Um, but then he will he will feel free to jump forward and tell you what the future significance of it is and then come back to the present. And you don't think about those things when you're... Um, Talking to people, or or even writing things that are are, are um, shorter in length, um, but all of a sudden, when you're writing a book like this, you need to think about okay, the audience knows what happened here, mm -hmm. uh, and so how much do you acknowledge of what's to come? Uh, you know, when I was writing about that first trial, mm -hmm. and trying to persuade the senators that if they didn't convict him, if they didn't remove him, right. he was going to try to cheat again. Right. And I remember saying, you know, what are the odds that he'll, if left in office, he'll try to cheat again? Not 5%, not 10%, not 50%, mm -hmm. but 100%. 100%. And um, now the, the reader knows what happens, and, mm -hmm. and, and it's worse than I imagined during that trial. Um, uh, I, I, I could have never imagined the bloody insurrection. And, uh, and ironically... Um, when the four of us, the speaker charged with planning for the joint session, mm -hmm. mapped out every contingency, the one we didn't map out was what happens if there's a violent attack on the Capitol. Mm -hmm. um, but um, um, it, it, it was uh, um, really, and I know you hear this and it sounds mm -hmm. trite from, from writers, but it really is a journey when you write something like mm -hmm. this because you, you live it again. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but you live it knowing how it turns out. Um, and how much uh, time were you devoting? How many pages a day? How many hours a day? How, did you do it all kind of in one fell swoop, or was it fits and starts? Um, For all know. the writers out there wondering how you <laughs> pull together a, a, a big book. Um, I, 
I'm a, I'm a night owl. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found out in law school that if I could set the world clock to my, mm-hmm. um, my schedule, um, I would be up till 3 in the morning and sleep until 11. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I didn't have a day job that permitted me to do that, so I was sleep-deprived for much of this. Mm-hmm. But I, had, I have a very full day job, and so the nighttime was the only time I could write. And, mm-hmm. but, but I also like the nighttime. And in the epilogue, um, I begin... Yeah, you talk you know, about it. I talk about the cicadas. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and how, uh, as I'm writing at midnight, mm-hmm. um, the cicadas are, are asleep for the night, and they'll be up in the morning with those riotous cries, and I, I thought to myself, what's the world going to look like in 17 years when they wake up again? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's the kind of thought that only comes to, to me anyway <laughs> at midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and The house is quiet, the city the is, is quiet. quiet. Everybody right. else is asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I really love that, that time of night. And, um, but I, I do I have one advice to writers who mm-hmm. write like I do late mm-hmm. at night. What you think is genius at one in the morning, you need to read again mm-hmm. in, in the morning mm-hmm. because uh, it looks different with the harsh light of day. Mm-hmm. Uh, fair enough. That's good. Um, well, let's look back a little bit. I did want to ask you um, when we talk about moving forward, and I, I don't, I, I think you, you talk a little bit about this in the book, but this is more in line with your work um, in Congress. But you, you are proposing um, a big package of bills that talks about. Um, uh, re, sort of rebuilding, rebuilding or re-strengthening, strengthening democracy. Um, I don't know that those have a whole lot of a chance in the very, very narrowly uh, Democrat majority Congress right now. Um, but can you talk a little bit about those and and why you think um, you know th- they are needed at this point and and what prospects they have for making it through this about, uh, I guess it would have been probably a year and a half ago, um, mm-hmm. I approached the speaker about the need for our own post-Watergate reforms. And after Watergate, Congress responded with a whole series of new guardrails to protect against abuse of executive power. And, um, and she thought it was a very worthwhile endeavor. And so I started to look at all the things that had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the inability to enforce congressional subpoenas, the violations of the Hatch Act, which prohibit the dragooning of the federal workforce to become a surrogate for the campaign, um, the, the fact that we couldn't uh, feasibly enforce the Emoluments Clause. Here's a clause in the Constitution mm-hmm. that prohibits a president from using their office to enrich themselves, and there was no clear enforcement mechanism, and we need to create one. And uh, it's a very long list to ways of attacking abuse of the pardon power and protecting inspector generals and whistleblowers. So I started working on this. And, of course, other members were working on other pieces. And we pulled them all together uh, in a package called the Protecting Our Democracy Act, um, which when we introduced last session, uh, you're right, um, Trump was still in office. Republicans, you know, were afraid of their shadow. They weren't going to do anything that could be even perceived as a criticism of the former president. Mm -hmm. Um, Now he's out of office. Uh, now we have a Democratic president, and I expect that Republicans are viewing this package a little differently. Um, they may be thinking to themselves, do we really want a Democratic president to be able to say, eh, Congress, you, you gave me a subpoena for information, but I'm going to stonewall all subpoenas. Um, good luck. Maybe years later, you can get something out of me if you go to court. 
Um, do we really want a president to um, hold the Democratic Party convention out the White House? Um, mm-hmm. Do we want uh, the president to be able to fire inspector generals that may be reviewing problems in the administration? Do the Republicans really want that? Do they really want to so um, uh, negate their own powers? And so I, I think they may view it differently now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the provisions in the bill, frankly, had Republican lead sponsors in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, we'll get it through the House. Uh, and and my, my hope and expectation is we'll take it up in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means soon. A- and the Senate, uh, there's some discussion of taking mm-hmm. it up piecemeal in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, however we can get it done, um, we should get it done. Um, so I, I wouldn't uh, ne- neglect the possibility of bipartisan support. In a normal world, in a normal America, mm-hmm. these things would be common sense, and members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, would be united. It would be the executive that didn't like it. Um, and, uh, and in fact, we're negotiating with the Biden White House because there are concerns that they mm-hmm. have. Uh, which we're trying to work out. Uh, but uh, um, I, I do view it as um, a key part of our pro-democracy agenda, along with mm-hmm. H.R. 1 and uh, the John Lewis uh, voting rights legislation. Also stuck stuck in Congress, unable to move right now, but, um, but obviously interesting pieces of legislation that are very high profile right now as well. Um, perhaps as we start to close, you know, people know you, as I said from the outset, perhaps most from the impeachment trial. Of course, the former president had all sorts of nicknames and hurled them at you as he did everything. There was something you said in your book about those nicknames that I thought was um, was interesting. You sort of gave a reciting of all the all the the names that the president called you. But then you said something at the end, um, perhaps you can remember it better than me, that it... it, it wasn't the names that sort of drove you crazy so much with the fact that it was the president saying them. Yeah. Can, can you expand on that? I think there's something that the former president has so captivated so many voters um, because he you know, tells it like it is. I, I, I heard that a million times on the campaign trail, right? People love the former president because he was not a sort of you know, politician, polished. Um, Yet we have come to a point in this country where we have some agreed-upon sort of rules of civil discourse, and um, there's reasons we don't sort of say things that perhaps might have been okay to say some years ago and are no longer considered okay to say. Can you talk a little bit about your experience um, being someone who was on the receiving end of of some of those comments from the president and what your takeaway from that was? Uh, Sure. One of the the stories I I relate in the book is uh, about the first time the president uh, attacked me on Twitter. Mm. Sleazy Adam Schiff spends too Mm -hmm. much time on TV pushing the Russia hoax or Mm -hmm. something along those lines. And uh, you realize, okay, this is going going out to tens of millions of people. It's coming from the president of the United States. Um, And, you know, my kids were fairly uh, young at the time, young teenagers. My son, I think, was just turned 14. He was at summer camp. And thankfully, at summer camp, they take your electronics away. Mm-hmm. And um, But when my wife and I went to pick him up from camp, um, I was hoping that he hadn't heard it yet so I could be, I could tell him. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like a lot of young teenage boys, they're not all that communicative about what they're thinking. And, uh, and by then, I had been the subject of a lot of uh, hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
I didn't know how it was affecting him. Um, and so we picked him up, and I said, uh, Eli, um, there's something that happened while you were at camp, and it's not a big deal, but I w- want mm-hmm. you to hear from me. Uh, the president of the United States called your father sleazy. And uh, I waited for the reaction, and he, uh, he looked kind of pensive for a moment, and then he turned to me and he said, uh, can I call you sleazy? Uh, and I said, well, only if you want me to call you sleazy, Jr. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, the kid's going to be all right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, what I, what I uh, overwhelmingly felt then and, and in the years that followed when mm-hmm. that was followed by other, you know, nicknames and whatnot is this is the president of the United States. Uh, I, I mean, I, I had such veneration for that office. Um, and to hear these childish things coming from the President of the United States, it was just um, so demeaning of the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the first time I went into the Oval Office while he was president, um, and there he was sitting behind that desk that, that other presidents had sat behind, mm-hmm. and he looked so out of place. I remember having the feeling that uh, here was a guy who, in private life, pretended to be a successful businessman when he was essentially a failure, um, and here he was pretending to be a president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and every time he would engage in that kind of buffoonery, um, it, it just struck me as, look at how, he's, look how he is diminishing that office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe because I chair the Intel Committee and I have a lot of interaction with people around the world, and um, I, I've been so conscious of how the rest of the world perceives America. And... Um, and to, to realize that they had such little respect for the President of the United States, um, that, uh, that he could be so manipulated, easily manipulated by others like Putin, mm. um, just, just was heartbreaking. I, I, during early in the presidency, when Angela Merkel came to visit Washington the first time, mm-hmm. the headline, I think, in Politico was, Leader of the Free World Meets Donald Trump. And I saw that, and it was... You know, it was very clever in its irony, mm-hmm. but it was also heartbreaking because it was true. Uh, the President of the United States was no longer the leader of the free world. He was attacking the free world. He was cozying up to dictators. And it was Angela Merkel who was now the beacon of hope for mm-hmm. democratic peoples. And, and to see that torch passed away from the United States, um, it was heartbreaking. Uh, it was heartbreaking. Uh, on January 6th, to, to realize what was happening to our capital and mm-hmm. how it looks to the rest of the world. Um, it's a terrible tragedy for us. It's, in many ways, a worse tragedy for people around the world because there's nowhere else for them to turn. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are in, in prison cells, journalists in prison cells um, uh, in, in Turkey, mm-hmm. um, they look to us. There's nowhere else for them to turn. Uh, political prisoners in Evan Prison in Iran look to us, and they're not going to look to China, they're not going to look to Russia, and increasingly they don't recognize what they see, and that is just a terrible tragedy. Mm -hmm. And on that, I think we'll leave it there. Is there anything else for viewers that you feel is important to add? uh, Yes, because I don't want to leave it there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think um, what is most debilitating for people right now Mm -hmm is they see what's going on and they just feel powerless to do anything about it and they're ready to give up. Um, number one, we can't give up. Uh, we, we can't give in to despair about mm-hmm. our circumstances because we are going to get through them. And, and what we do right now will determine how quickly we get through them. 
and everyone has a role to play uh, in getting through them. We can't all be Marie Ivanovich, you know, first through the breach, um, but there are ways every one of us in our public and private life can make a real difference to our democracy and push back around the country at these efforts to, to undermine our elections and undermine um, our, our democratic way of life. Uh, so uh, this book is a call to arms. It is not a call for surrender. It's a call mm-hmm. to arms. And, and also, notwithstanding its dark title, um, mm-hmm. it, uh, it holds the prospect of a lot of light. Uh, we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Congressman Adam Schiff and um, Midnight in Washington. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on the American military during the Revolutionary War with Baylor University professor Julianne Sweet. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and on the new C-SPAN Now app.